Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The rest of you can open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 21. Our text is on page 9 in the paperback Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that is okay. Uh, Underneath one of the chairs in front of you, a paperback Bible, you can get that out, turn it to page 9. But it would definitely be helpful to you to have a Bible open as we consider our text this morning. Speaking of the Bible, uh, as the new year is about to begin, some of you might be interested in considering a way to read through the Bible in the next year. Uh, It's not for everybody, but definitely recommended. And I didn't do it this past year, but I'm going to set my sights on doing it again this year. And just want to let you know that um, in the Lifeline email that went out this morning to the congregation, there's a link to various Bible reading plans. And uh, so I would draw your attention to that. I think there's like 16 or 18 different approaches. So there's a lot of different ways to do that. You can look and see which one fits your schedule the best. So take a look at that by email. This is a good time to start thinking about whether you want to commit yourself to reading through the Bible in 2022. Highly recommend it. Would suggest that to you. Okay. Well, we're continuing through our sermon series here on the life of Abraham. And today, as you all know, is the day after Christmas. And uh, the day after Christmas can be... Uh, an occasion for different emotions. For some of us, it's kind of a a relief. Uh, Some of us don't like Christmas uh, and find it a very stressful time, and so when Christmas is over, they're they're happy. For others, there's just a lot of planning. It can be kind of stressful. When Christmas is over, there's some relief. Uh, But for a lot of us, um, the day after Christmas is a different experience. It it might feel a little bit like a kind of a letdown. Uh, You know, we've been looking to this big day for so long. We've been planning and getting excited and anticipating the gifts that we're going to get and time with family and time off work. And there's just this excitement that builds and Christmas Day comes and then it just like vanishes and it's kind of hard to believe it's over already. It's the day after Christmas. And for some people, this is the day where they start feeling a little sad, a little depressed, uh, Was that it, we might think? Can't believe it came and went so quickly. Got to get back to work. Life is resuming its normalcy, and problems begin to enter into our view once again. This whole experience is just a picture of what it's like to live in a fallen world, isn't it? Life is this way, isn't it? We look forward to big events. We get excited about things that are going to be coming. We anticipate that the new job or the raise or the new girlfriend or boyfriend or graduation or retirement or the new house or the new car, something. We've got our sights fixed on these things and this is what's going to end all of our problems. This is what's going to make us finally happy. And then that time comes and it goes and it's the day after Christmas and we find that maybe it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Life goes on. Problems persist. Bills need to be paid. The house needs to be fixed. And we find ourselves feeling maybe a little let down, maybe a little disappointed. I think that's what Genesis 21 is about, actually, friends, this passage that we're looking at today. 
Um, last week, remember, last Sunday, <clears throat> in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 21, we read about this miraculous, unbelievable event, the birth of Isaac, the promised child, to Abraham and Isaac, uh, to Abraham and Sarah. Isaac's the name of the promised child. Abraham and Sarah, they're, they're excited. This is their, their dreams have come true in the birth of Isaac. And what we get here through the rest of chapter 21 is just life goes on. Problems persist. Things are hard. Even though their dreams were fulfilled, things are hard for Abraham and Sarah. And that's what we're going to read about. The good news, friends, is that God's grace never dies, never goes away, and that the Lord is with us even as we continue in our life in a fallen world full of trouble and difficulty. So that's what we're going to read about here. So if you're able to stand, please do so. It's a bit of a lengthy passage. Um, I'm going to start with verse 8. Chapter 21, verse 8, and read to the end of the chapter. Genesis 21, verse 8. Okay, right after Isaac is born, and it says, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, She lifted up her voice and wept, and God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. And he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert in the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, 
that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath, so they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Holy Spirit, would you please come and open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we're going to look at this passage, just dividing it up into three sections, three kind of main incidents that all are kind of a form of, of challenge or trouble or difficulty that enters into Abraham's and Sarah's lives after the birth of Isaac. So three things. The first thing we're going to look at here on the day after Christmas is Sarah's complaint. Sarah's complaint. So Isaac is born, verses 1 through 7. Uh, starting with verse 8, we learn about this child. He's, he's growing up. Uh, there's a, a great celebration. Abraham makes this great feast. The, the boy is weaned, so we, we get this sense of excitement and joy and gladness about the promised child here, but there's a problem. <laughs> Abraham's wife is mad. Abraham's wife, Sarah, is upset And we see this in verse 9. What happens is she sees the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham. So uh, who is this a reference to? The son of Hagar. If you've been with us for a while, maybe maybe you know this. But uh, one thing to note is that this son of Hagar, his name is not mentioned through this entire passage. He's always referred to as the son or as the boy and uh, the reason is because we're supposed to kind of get the idea that in Sarah's mind, she doesn't even want to mention his name. That's how much Sarah holds this boy and his mother in contempt. Name not even mentioned, but if you've been with us again, you know who this is talking about. It's the boy Ishmael. Ishmael was born to Hagar through Abraham. And Sarah sees this son of Hagar, the Egyptian, sees Ishmael. What she sees in particular is that he's laughing, the end of verse 9. She sees Ishmael laughing. Now, this is a, a particular kind of laughing. If you have an NIV translation, it will say that she saw him mocking. So this is not Ishmael laughing with Isaac, like they're telling jokes and having a good time together. No, this is Ishmael laughing at Isaac. And Sarah sees this, and she's angered by this. She's infuriated by this. And so she says in verse 10 to Abraham, her husband, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman will not be an heir with my son Isaac. Now, remember, this whole thing about Hagar and Abraham getting together was Sarah's idea, remember? <laughs> but she has conveniently forgotten that, and she's upset. Uh, we don't know all the details about what it is that's making her mad, but um, certainly part of this is the fact that her new son, Isaac, is being mocked and laughed at. So, Sarah tells Abraham, cast them out. Now, Ishmael, remember, although... Uh, born earlier, uh, is still has a right to the inheritance just as much as Isaac does. Ishmael and Isaac both are Abraham's sons, so they have a right to the inheritance. And this is one of the things that's bothering Sarah at the end of verse 10. 
he will not be an heir with my son. So Sarah does not want Ishmael to get the same inheritance as Isaac. And so she tells Abraham, get rid of him. And um, <clears throat> Abraham's very displeased about this, verse 11. Very displeased on account of his son. Um, Abraham loves Isaac, I'm sure, but you know, Abraham loves Ishmael too. Ishmael is his son just as much as Isaac is his son. And so this is hard for Abraham. He's upset about this, but God enters into the picture in verse 12 and speaks to Abraham, probably through a dream, and says to Abraham, um, <clears throat> don't, don't worry about it. Um, whatever Sarah tells you to do, do it. Send, send him out. And so that's what Abraham does. And we see these last few verses, 13 and 14, that um, Abraham rises early in the morning, he gets some bread, gets some water, gives it to Hagar and her son Ishmael, and they are sent out. At the very end of verse 14, they go out into a wilderness area of Beersheba. Beersheba is an area of very dry, very, very little rain occurs in Beersheba over the course of the year. They're sent out, <clears throat> you know, that's why the water is, is, is given to them, and um, off they go into the wilderness. So that's kind of the first incident, Sarah's complaint as she sees Ishmael mocking, laughing at her son Isaac. Now, one of the things that I think is so interesting about this uh, story and where it's placed and why it kind of arises at this point is, let's just back up just a little bit, going back to those first seven verses, the birth of Isaac. I wonder if it strikes you as kind of odd that God, or the Word here, only spends seven verses on the life of Isaac, or the birth of Isaac, the birth of Isaac. I, I mean, this, remember, just as review, remember, 25 years Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for this child. About nine chapters of Genesis, we've been hearing about this. We've been looking at this for four months here on Sunday mornings, waiting for this promised child to come, and he finally comes, and we get seven verses about the, about the birth. You know, if this were a movie, if this were a movie, and Isaac was being born, you know that this would take up a good portion of the film. You, you know you'd get all sorts of close-up camera angles of little cooing Isaac and how cute of a little baby he is, and the camera would probably move in slow motion, and you get the dramatic music would be welling up, and the audience watching the movie would be in tears as this promise is finally fulfilled, the birth of Isaac. But the Scriptures don't do that. The Scriptures give us Seven quick verses, Isaac was born, now let's move on. As if to say that when victories happen and when God does mighty things in our lives, it doesn't mean the end of trouble. Life goes on, problems persist, challenges continue. The fact that we experience certain spiritual victories does not mean somehow we're elevated out of the difficulty and trouble of living in a fallen world. And I think sometimes Christians misunderstand this a little bit. They get kind of disillusioned. They receive the gospel and they hear about the love of God for them and they hear about going to heaven and their sins being forgiven and they hear about all these wonderful things and they get a little bit surprised when life doesn't lighten up for them. But I think that's what this passage is teaching us. Yes, it's miraculous, it's unbelievable what God did in giving Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. But life goes on. 
I mean, I think about the end of World War II. I mean, I wasn't alive at that time. Maybe some of uh, you here were, but I just can't imagine what a joy it must have been to open up the papers and read war is over. The war has come to an end. World War II ended. Six years of world conflict coming to an end. What a victory. What a happy thing. What a reason to celebrate. But you know, that wasn't the end of the story. And in fact, a lot of problems persisted after that. Europe had to be rebuilt. Who was going to do that? How about all the Jews liberated from the concentration camps? Somebody had to guide them and lead them to getting reintegrated into society. That's a big issue. And now you got a guy named Joseph Stalin running Russia who was an ally for the United States, but then he ends up becoming this great threat to world peace and perhaps even more brutal than Adolf Hitler in the number of people who died under his reign. World War II ended, but it wasn't the end of the problems. And the gospel is very much like that, friends. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, the war is won. Jesus is risen from the dead. He has defeated the devil. He's emptied sin of its power. He's reconciled us to our creator. War is over. We can say that in the gospel. War is over, but battles continue. You're still going to argue with your spouse. You still might not like your job. You still got debts to pay. You still get bad news from the doctor. Being a Christian, believing the gospel doesn't make any of those things go away. They can make those things easier to deal with, but they're not going away. There's a hymn writer, Annie Johnson Flint, said this, God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, or peace without pain, but he has promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. That's promised to you. Freedom from problems is not. Jesus says it like this, in the world you will have tribulation, Christians, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We look to Jesus in our trouble, but we don't expect the trouble to go away. So Isaac is born, what a great thing, but there's a family squabble here that immediately enters into the picture, and that leads to the second thing, which is Hagar's hardship in verses 15 to 21, Hagar's hardship. Very sad situation that we read about here as Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael into the wilderness in this place called Beersheba, as I said earlier, mentioned at the end of verse 14. And the water that Abraham sent with Hagar and Ishmael, we find in verse 15, runs out. And so here's this mother and her child, and they're out in the wilderness. It's an absolute desperate situation. They're lost, they don't have a home, they don't have enough food, they don't have enough water, and it gets so bad that in verse 15, Hagar becomes convinced that her son's going to die. And so she places him under a bush. Verse 16, we see that she, she walks away, <clears throat> kind of gets some distance between herself and her son, not to abandon the son, but just because she does not want to be so close to him that she has to watch him die. And so she says, I'm just going to go over here just a little while. Let me not look on the death of the child. And again, this is Ishmael. Ishmael probably 15, 16 years old at this time. And at the end of verse 16, we see that Hagar cannot contain her emotions anymore. And so she lifts up her voice and she weeps. 
And then we see God show up. God hears the boy, verse 17. God is not absent. He hears the voice of the boy. Now, that's very interesting. It says God hears the voice of the boy because um, Isaac, you might know, we just heard about laughter and mocking. Uh, Ishmael mocking or laughing at Isaac. The word Isaac means laughter. But the word Ishmael means God hears. And so there's this interesting kind of wordplay going on in the Hebrew that you don't really get so readily in the English, but, but, but it's there. And so as, um, as, uh, as Hagar here is lifting up her voice, and apparently Ishmael is also, we see that God, God hears the voice. God hears their cries. And so he calls out to Hagar in verse 17, and, and he offers this encouragement. He says, I've heard the boy. I've heard your cries. I'm listening. I'm listening to you. Your pain, your hardship is not being overlooked by me. I, I'm sensitive to what you're going through, and God draws near, and he gives encouragement to Hagar and Ishmael, and says in verse 18, he says, get up, hold him fast, take him into your arms. I'm going to make him into a great nation. I've got plans for this man called Ishmael. I'm going to do great things with him. And then in verse 19, God opens Hagar's eyes to see this well of water. It doesn't seem like the well of water was not there. I think it was there the whole time. For some reason, she couldn't see it. I, I don't know why, but God opens her eyes, and she sees this well. <clears throat> she goes to it. She gets water out, and um, she gives it to her son, and their lives are spared because God heard them in their hardship. And then the kind of episode ends here, Why, as we learn about Ishmael, he grows up, he lives in the wilderness, he becomes an expert with the bow, and uh, Hagar, you might remember, is an Egyptian, and so Hagar goes and finds an Egyptian wife for her son, Ishmael. Now, uh, what we can't forget here and not miss, and I've told you this before, and we spent some time talking about Ishmael weeks ago, and so we don't want to go into a lot of those details now, but you can go to the web and listen to uh, past sermons if you'd like, but one thing to be reminded of about Ishmael is that he is not a part of God's gracious redemptive covenant. Ishmael is not the chosen son. Look at the end of verse 12. When God is speaking to Abraham, he says, whatever Sarah tells you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not through Ishmael. It's through Isaac. God has a very specific redemptive plan. He has a very particular way he's going to do this. He's going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. This is a promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 3 about the descendant who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. This is going to come through Isaac, not through Ishmael. A great nation is going to be made of Ishmael. That's true. That's true. We don't really know historically exactly how that played out. That's what we talked about weeks ago, but we do know that that great nation is not Israel. Israel comes from Isaac, not Ishmael. And it's from Israel that the Messiah is going to come, not through Ishmael's lineage. In other words, I don't think we can see Ishmael as a believer. There's no evidence in the Scriptures that he is a believer. There's no evidence that he belongs to Yahweh. He, he's not following in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a, he's a stranger to the promise. He's outside the covenant. And yet, God is merciful and kind and gracious to him. 
God listens, God responds, and in the midst of their hardship, God comes and shows his kindness to this person who doesn't even belong to him. I mean, that's just got to make you think about the way you and I deal with people that we don't like or people we don't agree with. I mean, one thing we can take from this, I I think, is this. There's something encouragement encouraging about prayer. If God heard the prayer of Ishmael in his hardship, how much more will he hear your prayer in hardship? Ishmael didn't have a mediator, but you and I do as Christians. Jesus is our mediator. That's why God hears us. God heard Ishmael. How much more is he going to hear you? So friends, cry out in your hardship. Lift up your voice and weep if you need to to God. And have assurance that he's going to hear you. If he heard Hagar and Ishmael, he's going to hear you, Christian. But the other thing to consider here is how we deal with people who are different than us. Friends, no matter, no matter how contemptible you might find somebody's views, that is never an excuse for you to be unkind. In the way you treat them, in the way you talk about them, in the way you talk to them. God was kind to Ishmael and Hagar. God has been kind to you in your sin, and so you should be kind to others. If your worst enemy is in trouble, friends, let me just ask a little kind of exercise here. Your worst enemy is in trouble. Are you going to go help? Are you going to listen to their cry? Are you going to extend kindness? That's what we as Christians do. We don't block people off. We don't cut people out of our lives because we don't like them. We don't look at someone with a political viewpoint different than us or who holds a different religious viewpoint or who has a different view on sexuality. We don't look at them and cut them out and slander them and be unkind to them. That's not the way Christians should act. That's not the way God acts. So that's not the way we should act. And this is how Jesus says it in John 5. You have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the way the world lives. Love the people you like, hate the people you disagree with, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that's what God is doing, seeking out Hagar and Ishmael, and it's a comfort that he's done that for us, an example, so that we would do it for others. The last thing we see after Sarah's complaint and Hagar's hardship, we see Abraham's conflict. And so that is presented to us, verses 22 to 34. Verses 22 to 34, starting in verse 22, we got this guy Abimelech who shows up. Abimelech, same guy that we saw in uh, chapter 20. This was the guy who Abraham lied to. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Abraham falling into that same old sin. This is the same Abimelech. He shows up with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they approach Abraham and basically what they're asking for here is um, kind of a non-aggression pact. And one thing we should see here is how Abraham has risen in stature in the promised land. Uh, This is a king in the land. He's got to bring the commander of his army, and basically they're going to Abraham and saying, please, Abraham, don't kill us. (laughs) But please, Abraham, let's have a relationship here. Let's let's be kind to each other. That's what they're asking for. We've dealt kindly with you, so please don't deal falsely with me or my descendants. Verse 23, um, you know, let, let's, let's be friends, is basically what they're saying. And Abraham says at the end of verse 24, I swear, okay, I will. Let, let's, let's have this um, relationship. But there's, there's one problem 
starting with verse 25, that Abraham brings to Abimelech's memory. Uh, it's like, hey, Abimelech, the one thing, you know, that well of water that I had that your men seized and took from me, um, let's talk about that <laughs> before we go any further in kind of developing some kind of treaty or friendship here. And so Abimelech responds in verse 26, and he says, ah, hey, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Nobody told me about that. I don't know, I don't know what that's about. Now, whether he's lying or telling the truth here, we, we don't know. Uh, <clears throat> but apparently, Abraham accepts his, his excuse, he doesn't know. So they enter into this covenant, verse 27. Uh, Abraham takes sheep, oxen, and gives them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. So they have this, this agreement here between the two of them. And this is securing Abraham's place in the land. And um, we notice here that um, Abimelech accepts it. So um, it says, let's see, verse 30, these seven ewe lambs that Abraham presents to Abimelech will be for my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. So Abraham gives these gifts to Abimelech and that's kind of uh, Abraham's kind of goodwill offering and uh, Abimelech accepts them, and um, it, it's kind of agreed between the two of them here that yes, indeed, this well does belong to Abraham. Let this be a witness, he says, that I dug this well. So they swear an oath, verse 31, verse 32, they, they make this covenant. So non-aggression pact, they've got a treaty, they've got a covenant, they're gonna get along, and there's gonna be this, this relationship. And so just one thing I think we can take from this um, perhaps practically speaking, is that while it's true that Jesus says that there are times we need to turn the other cheek in personal relationships, there is a time, friends, for us to assert our rights, that, that there is a time when we can avail ourselves of um, legal means that are available to us to secure protection for our family and our resources. I mean, that's what Abraham is doing here. I mean, he's like, you stole my well? I mean, Abraham might have reasoned, well, I'm, I'm gonna be a good Christian here and just not talk about it and just let him have it. But that's not what he does. He comes and he makes a confrontation. He says, you got something that belongs to me and that's not right and I want it back. And we'll enter into an agreement if you want, but give me what belongs to me. Now, there's a balance here. You know, as Christians, there are times when we give up our rights, that there's times when we don't assert that we have to get what's due to us. I mean, that's true. But then there are other times when it's appropriate to do what Abraham has done, to, to not be a doormat and just roll over for anybody who wants to take and do anything that they want to us because we're supposed to be Christians who always turn the other cheek. There's a balance here, there's wisdom. This takes prayer, wisdom, time, a place in a community of faith where we can get counsel from brothers and sisters and pastors, but there is a time when we avail ourselves of what is available to assert our rights. So. That's, that's the passage, so let's just conclude here by asking this question. Where is the gospel in, in uh, Genesis 21? Where's the gospel in this? I mean, these kind of odd stories all tied together, what are we supposed to learn about the gospel? Well, you know, not all Old Testament passages are mentioned in the New Testament. And so there are certain times when we're looking at an Old Testament passage and we might not really be sure exactly what it means. But this Old Testament passage is mentioned in the New Testament. 
And when the New Testament takes an Old Testament passage and interprets it for us and says this is what it means, that's like a freebie. I mean, this is easy now. The New Testament, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, is telling us what the passage means. And this is what happens in Galatians chapter 4, where, by the grace of God, we get insight into the gospel implication here. And so I just want to read this passage to you. Galatians 4, here's what Paul says. This is many centuries later, and he's reflecting on Genesis 21. And he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, Hagar, one by a free woman, that's Sarah. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. That's Isaac. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, our meaning Christians. So brothers... We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now that's a mouthful. There's a lot to unpack here, but I'm just going to sum it up very quickly. I think here's what Paul is trying to say. And that is that there are two ways to approach salvation. There are basically two ways for everybody in the world to consider how you might be saved, accepted by God, know that there is a future for you in heaven. There's really two ways to approach it. One is through Hagar, the slave woman. And through Hagar, that's the, that's the natural way to pursue salvation. That's, that's not the supernatural way. It's not thinking of supernatural things. It's natural way. It's, it's, this is seeking salvation apart from God, not with God. This is seeking salvation by obedience to the law, human effort, trying to be a good, obedient, moral person. This is an approach to salvation with, which trusts oneself, Not anybody outside, not God, not any savior. It's just me doing it on my own. That's the way Ishmael was born to Hagar and Abraham. It's like we're not going to trust God's promise anymore. We've got an idea. Through our intelligence, through our cleverness, here's how we'll do it. Sarah says, Abraham, Hagar, get together. We're going to do this on our own. We're not relying on God anymore. We've got our own way of saving ourselves. And how many people think of salvation in that way? I don't need a God. I don't need a Savior. I'm good enough. I'm trying hard. I'm sincere. I love people. I'm not a bad person like all these others. I'm going to do it on my own. That's one approach. The other approach is through Sarah. Salvation through Sarah is the supernatural way, not the natural way. It's relying on an action of God, not avoiding God. It's through grace, not the law. It's not any obedience to the law, but a gift of grace that comes from God. It's not trusting yourself, but trusting someone else. And that someone else is not Sarah, (laughs) but the descendant of Sarah, Isaac, who has a descendant called Jacob, who then flows down through the years until we finally get to the descendant called Jesus, the son of Abraham. And this is what Paul is saying that Jesus is that descendant, and he is the one that you need to trust if you are going to be saved. 
You can try it on your own. You can be as good as you can. You can avoid God, but that is the way of slavery and death. But by putting your faith in this descendant of Abraham, that is the way of freedom and life. So there are many things to take from this passage. The scriptures are always rich in all that they have to teach us, and we can learn from these things, but friends, we would completely miss the point if we read Genesis 21 and miss the most fundamental thing, and that is that if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you turn from your efforts to please God and trust in His efforts and all that He has done in His obedient life and His sacrificial death and in His glorious resurrection, you will be saved and you will be free. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for revealing to us the way of salvation. Oh, Lord, help us as we seek, Father, to be people who walk by faith through a troubled, fallen, difficult world. Lord, help us not to be naive, thinking that we are trouble-free. Help us not to be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon us. Help us instead to rejoice, to trust you, to look to you, and the knowledge, Lord, that you will care for us and that you will be with us until the end. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.